thanks everybody for coming out to join us at the new school at Commonweal. Um, I think I know most of you, but I'm Susan Braun, the executive director here at Commonweal, and would like to welcome you. Is anyone here for the first time? Oh, great. Wonderful to have new people. Welcome, a special welcome to you. This is a part of a series that we've done for about five years now called The New School. And so in addition to having the live presentation today, it will be recorded and will be available with how many other podcasts, Kira, that are already on the website? More than 100 podcasts. So we welcome you to our website, um, the Commonweal website and the New School website, where you will see the other podcasts that are available, and this will join it in a few weeks. I would also like to introduce you to Kira Epstein, who is the coordinator of the New School, to Ken Adams, who is so good as to both, who produces these from, from soup to nuts. And for those of you who haven't been to Commonweal before, feel free to ask us questions later. But we're an organization that has been here for over 30 years um, doing work that helps to heal ourselves and heal the planet. We have several major programs. We have the Cancer Help Program, which is a, a week-long residential program for people with cancer. We have the Collaborative on Health and the Environment. And in fact, I'd like to introduce you to our scientific director, Ted Shetler, who's here with us today. Um, we have the Commonweal Garden that many of you know, the Regenerative Design Institute. We have a biomonitoring program. We have um, a juvenile justice program. We have an oceans <laughs> conservation program. We have our retreat center here. So we have a, a wide array of programs that we're doing that really have been designed over the years to help make this world a, a better place to live. So without going too much further, let me start to introduce our guests. And also, may I remind you please to turn off cell phones, any portable electronic devices that make noise, because this is being recorded. And also, I'm sorry that Kate Levitson from Point Reyes Books is not with us today, but we do have books for sale um, from Point Reyes Books out front. Kira. Oh, and you can pay, pay Kira, and she promises she'll pay, she promises she'll pay Kate. Um, so let me introduce you to our esteemed guests, friends, and colleagues. I will start with Rebecca Katz, who is to my far right. Rebecca has been a part of the Commonweal community for more than a decade, has been a part of the Cancer Help Program, which I just talked about from early, early years, and has become a, a nationally renowned expert in nutrition and the role of food supporting health and the chronically ill. She has a Master's of Science degree in health and nutrition education and is also a chef, having done culinary training at the New York's uh, Nat Natural Gourmet Institute for Health and Culinary Arts. She's a speaker. She is a chef. She trains health professionals. She's been a part of the Cancer Guides Program with Jim Gordon in the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, and you do that on a regular basis, teaching practitioners primarily how to work with their patients in caring, um, caring about the, uh, the nutrition in all aspects, really, of the, of the care of their patients with cancer. She is also the initiator of our new Healing Kitchens Institute here at Commonweal, one of our very newest programs that we're beginning to get off the ground and 
That will be primarily a train-the-trainer program where Rebecca and her colleagues will train medical professionals to help provide this kind of nutrition education and consultation for, for people with cancer. She is also the author of the award-winning book, which is Outside, The Cancer-Fighting Kitchen, which I know many of you have used, and also before that, One Bite at a Time, which was my first introduction to Rebecca. And I think another thing that's important is that she is the inventor of the power of yum. And I suspect that she will talk to you a little bit about what that means. Yes, and I would also like to introduce you to Saja Greenwood, who has been very helpful to us working with Rebecca in providing one-on-one -on -one consultations for each of the eight participants who comes to the week-long cancer help program that we hold six times a year. So welcome, Rebecca. Welcome back. Jean Wallace um, is re widely regarded as one of the um, nation's most prominent experts in nutritional oncology. So her focus has been, and I think your major focus is in brain cancer, if that's correct, but she's also worked in breast cancer, ovarian cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer, and other cancers as well. And what she does is provide evidence-based dietary and nutritional and botanical support for um, people as, as a complement, people who are going through cancer treatment as a complement to their traditional um, conventional care. She is also a consultant to oncologists. And let's see what's most important here to add. She combines her efforts in functional medicine and translational research to work with our evolving understanding of the interrelationship between the nutritional and metabolic factors um, of the individual and then what goes on in cancer cells. So dysregulated cell si signals and altered gene expression, genetic instability, the evasion of apoptosis, lack of differentiation, neoangiogenesis. She's going to talk to you about what all these things are. Um, invasion and metastases. I, I think this sentence, though, I love, is a, a real descriptor of who Jean is. She's a tireless instigator in the emerging trend towards individualization of therapies for cancer patients. I think that summarizes beautifully the work that you do, Jean. She is also someone who has consulted to many of the people who have come here and people around the country who have sought out her expertise as they have gone through their walk with cancer and I know has done amazing work to help make that walk a healthier walk and one that is, has extraordinary outcomes. Thank you. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. And Jean, this is your first time here. Is it yes. your first time in Bolinas? Uh, I think so. Oh yes. my! You're, you might have to have it. You might have to have a tour. Um, here's what we'll do this afternoon. Uh, Jean and Rebecca are going to have a presentation first, where they will have dialogue and conversation. We will have then an interview, and then we'll open it up to question and answer. So on with the show. I will turn it over to Jean. Great. Welcome everyone. Thank you. Thanks for coming. I look forward to talking with you and sharing some information today. So. When I started in this field, and, and some who know me know that I started in this field because I grew up in a family where everybody got cancer. And I am the first female in that family to have reached 40, now almost 50, and not have a cancer diagnosis. But um, my mom has had three different primary cancers and survived all of those. So I grew up as a child knowing I wanted to work with cancer. And arriving as an adult and, and um, 
working with nutrition and cancer. This is, you know, 15 years ago, and the field was not really ready for a discussion about food and cancer. And I think that, as, as each of you probably know, the medical establishment really feels like they're fighting a war, right? We characterize this business of working with cancer as a war. And so I often had these stares of disbelief when I would be at some cancer conference with my little table with a little basket like Rebecca has brought here for us. And, and the oncologists, you know, the, the, the feeling would be like, you know, we're using our most aggressive weapons to fight this war. <laughs> so how are you thinking that some wimpy little foods are going to have any effect against this, you know, massive enemy? And the way that we've characterized the disease I think is a mistake. And so I want to start with just a, and you, know, you have copies of these slides, so you'll be able to look back and please don't feel that you have to take notes. If you miss something, you can contact my office and I'll tell you again, but there are- They actually don't have copies of the <gasps> slides. We're going to post them on the website. The copies of the slides will be available on the website and they're, they're already, already posted. posted. So <laughs> relax, don't take notes. You're going to get all this information. But I just, there are so many studies emerging and coming out now that have, you know, that ask the question, does food really have an effect? I think intuitively many of us know that food is really important. Food is primary, but you know it, it always helps to shell out a lot of big money and run a well-designed study and find out for sure if there's an effect for food. So the, this slide just shows you a, a handful of, a, really a small handful of studies. The breast cancer study that is the top study here really is a key study where they were able to show that a combination of healthy changes to the diet with minimal exercise was able to greatly improve, like a 45% improvement in survival at the 10-year mark. That's a really significant effect for diet and exercise. That effect was able to overcome drawbacks or negative parameters that would usually spell not such a good survival. So for example, uh, for women who were very overweight, that's usually a concern when you're fighting breast cancer. But if those women were eating their vegetables and they were getting a little bit of exercise, it obliterated the risk associated with being overweight mm -hmm. in that study. So food can be really powerful. And, and again, <laughs> just a handful of studies that show really significant, an ovarian cancer study also of 45% increase um, over a five-year period. And it, food is really powerful, and we know this. But how can this be working? Because food is wimpy, and yet it's also powerful. So we want to know, how does this work? And this has, been, this has been my field. This is what I've been trying to do for the last 15 years is explain what's really going on and present it in a way that oncologists and cancer patients and families can really understand. And so I've invented this term I call the oncometabolic milieu, which is fancy medical lingo speak that opens doors for me. But what it really says is <laughs> the environment in the body is influencing the cancer cells. There's a conversation going on between the cancer cells and the environment in the body. The environment in the body, you can shift that. You can shift that with the food that you're eating, the activity or exercise that you're doing. I like to call it movement because exercise is something people are allergic to, but just movement is fun, it's joyful, right? With what you're thinking, with if you meditate, with if you have a pet that loves you, these kinds of things shift the environment in the body. And then the conversation that's happening between the cancer cells and, and the body is such that 
it's not really favorable to the rapid growth and progression of the cancer cells. So if you got nothing else, if you had to leave for some reason right now out the door, that was the main point. And so everything you get from here will be icing on top of the cake. Rebecca's points are also very important, but the rest of mine... <laughs> okay. Now, this environment in the body, when you get down to the whole biochemistry of it, in essence, there are swirling about your body hundreds of uh, chemical messengers and hormones and proteins and factors that are talking to the cancer cells and might be sending growth messages. Those factors can be turned off. And I want to teach you today some easy things you can do to turn those factors off. All of those, that oncometabolic milieu, that conversation that's happening, can be clustered into eight groups. So it's nutrient imbalances or hormone imbalances, insulin resistance or problems with your blood sugar, inflammation, which is a really strong promoter of cancer. And we're talking about the sort of silent, hidden, chronic inflammation in the body. Uh, gene instability and talking to your genes, we'll talk about that today. Um, clotty blood. Angiogenesis, that means the growth of new blood vessels. That's driven by uh, uh, genes that can be controlled by certain foods. And then your immune system. And people know about the immune system in cancer, so we're not going to talk about that. Today we're going to talk about three of these eight because I would like to speak uh, softly and slowly enough for you to understand everything and not cover all eight things. So three things. We'll talk insulin resistance, talking to your genes, and inflammation. Okay, first, we're going to modulate some gene expression. This is just my all-time favorite thing in the entire field of nutrition, everything I've ever studied. And genes, you know, in your body, your, every cell in your body has the genetic information to recreate your entire body. So inside your liver cells are all the information about your eye color and your height and your hair color and all your hormones. It's all, the information is all in there. It's a repository of all the information. But in any given cell, only some of the cells are expressed, some of the genes are expressed at a certain time, and other genes are kept quiet. And that epigenetic, outside the gene, what controls what information is turned on, what genes are upregulated, and what genes are downregulated, that's not written in stone. So where we often think of, well, I have that in my genes, because my mom had that, my dad had that. You know, we now know that, that it, genes are much more mutable, much more plastic. So you're not stuck with the genetic luck of the draw that you were born with. You have some ways to influence that. And food is one of the most important ways. We now are discovering in the field of nutrition, we thought, oh, first it's all about energy. You know, it's about calories. Oh, look, there's, there's fats and proteins and, and carbohydrates in food. And then they discover the vitamins and minerals. And then they discover the phytonutrients. We keep learning all this new stuff about food. And some of the newest research is that foods contain constituents or phytonutrients predominantly that can change gene expression. So I'm going to share with you lots of studies have been come out, coming out about food changing gene expression in cancer. This is a study by Lillian Thompson in Montreal at McGill University. And I love picking this particular one because people are often afraid of flax seeds in cancer. You hear this story about, well, doesn't flax have estrogen in it and aren't I supposed to avoid that? And uh, this is a lovely human study that really answered a lot of that. What she did is she took women who had just had their biopsy for breast cancer and so they, had, they were able to look at the genes in the breast cancer cells. And she enrolled them in a study where she introduced about two tablespoons of flax seeds per day baked into the interior of a muffin. 
And then the other women ate a placebo muffin. No flax seeds were there. And at the end of two or three months, when the women had their ultimately their surgeries, this was a second sample where they could look at the gene expression and see just the only change being this, you know, muffin that had or did not have flax seeds, was there any change to the characteristics of that woman's breast cancer cells? And there were very significant changes. Some of those changes were, for example, there was a 70% reduction in the expression of the HER2 new gene. Now, HER2 new is a gene that um, if it's active, it can decrease the sensitivity of breast cancer to chemotherapy. Now we have Herceptin, which targets it, and it makes it a little bit easier, but it's not a good news gene. So being able to downregulate that 70% was really significant. Also, the rate at which the cells were dividing, the KI67, was greatly reduced. And the number of cancer cells within the sample that were undergoing programmed cell death had increased very significantly. This is from two tablespoons of flaxine. This is powerful medicine, changes in genes. So, and lots of different foods have been studied. And they're the ones that you associate as being the anti-cancer foods. So a lot of presentations I've seen about food and cancer start with like, these are our 10 heavy hitters, garlic and brassica family vegetables and kale. And you know, it's the lovely things that, that Rebecca is featuring in her basket here. And um, you know, I, I, those things have all had that effect. But there's also the effect of the entire diet. And so while the research has been sort of plodding along, testing one food at a time, it's like, oh, look, Brussels sprouts are really powerful medicine in terms of shifting your gene regulation. Uh, Dean Ornish comes out and says, well, what happens if we change the whole diet? What's the effect on, mm -hmm. on gene expression then, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a study that you're looking at here where he has shown that uh, a change of diet, and this has some lifestyle um, component to it as well, which I'll tell you about in a minute, in men with prostate cancer. They have the men, they're diagnosed with prostate cancer. These men are not going to undergo conventional therapy. So there's no effect of hormone treatments or radiation, any of anything else. They have their biopsy. They are enrolled in the program. They get some food counseling. They come in. Dean Ornish has them come in and demonstrates food changes and gives them the support. They have a counselor to work with. Um, they're supplied with their food. He also does exercise and lifestyle and stress modification at the same time. Some months later, he does another biopsy. These men are scheduled for a biopsy, and he has another sample. And they're able to look at, this is a microarray analysis that you're looking at on the slide. So it's able, this is a sort of a computer chip a way of looking at all the different genes, or many, many hundreds of thousands of genes at a time. Tens of thousands of genes, not hundreds. And what you're looking at is red are genes that are upregulated. These are cancer genes that are upregulated in the before. After the change in diet and lifestyle, what do you see? Very few of the cancer genes are still turned on. Mm -hmm. So those genes are still there. You haven't gotten rid of the genes. It's that they're now quiet. So this is like, whoa. This is big. This means probably the most powerful medicine that we have is food, if we would just learn how to harness it. And so I want to share with you some of that today, and Rebecca will show you how to make it yummy. Okay. One of my favorite ways, now that you know that food can change gene expression, I want to give you my favorite way to change hundreds of genes that's really easy. Okay, now how does a body, how does a cell with all of its genetic information in it know whether to turn cancer genes on or to turn it off? There's that 
interplay, that conversation that's happening between the environment in the body, the environment that we live in, and the environment we're creating with our thoughts. And how does that get translated into the cell and tell the interior of the cell in the nucleus where, where all the genes are locked up? How does it get the message? Well, there's a, a signaling molecule called NF-kappa-beta. And she's sort of like the CEO of the company. We want her quiet. We don't want her sending messages of alarm into the, the genes and saying, stuff is wrong out here. There's all kinds of chemicals in the environment, and our food is not really that great. And it, these alarm messages from, for example, carcinogens in the environment or viral infections or radiation or stress or uh, inflammation, these get turned on by NF-kappa-beta, and then the cancer genes get turned on or the cardiovascular genes, or, you know, disease, or the diabetes genes get turned on. So we want to appease our NF-kappa-beta. And if she gets turned on, she will in turn send the message to over four or 500 different cancer genes to turn those oncogenes on. So keeping her suppressed is very important. Now, as you can imagine, the pharmaceutical companies are hot on the heels of some drug they can release that's an NF-kappa-beta inhibitor. And uh, Bharat Agarwal, who's uh, probably the leading researcher of NF-kappa-beta and cancer, has called NF-kappa-beta and suppressing it the holy grail of cancer treatment and prevention. So, you know, it won't surprise me if in the next couple of years we, some new drug comes to the market that's an inhibitor of this. But I bet everybody in this room has an NF-kappa-beta inhibitor in their kitchen. In fact, you're sitting in the room with an NF-kappa-beta, in fact, two or three, four NF-kappa-beta inhibitors right now. They're probably in your spice cabinet. Mm -hmm. Because MD Anderson, Bharat Agarwal, the researcher there, has shown that all common spices that they have tested are potent inhibitors mm -hmm. of NF-kappa-beta. So this is the reason to season your food. And Rebecca will, will give you some tips about how to do that well so that you get to the power of yum. But what I want you to remember is when you're preparing some food and you open up that spice medicine cabinet, the medicine slash spice cabinet, you're thinking to yourself, I'm talking to my genes and I'm telling them to, you know, I'm telling my NF-kappa-beta to be quiet here so that if I have turned on or activated oncogenes, I can suppress those. And... When I look at this, I start to think, because I have a love-love relationship with food. Does anybody else have a love-love relationship with food? I love to talk about it. I love to think about it. I like to grow it. I like to cook it. I like to eat it. It's all good. So when I start looking at lists of ingredients, I start thinking about what's for dinner, even if I just finished breakfast. <laughs> so I want to just point out a couple of nice ways to get your NF-kappa-beta inhibition. Curcumin has been really, so turmeric has been really high uh, research in terms of its ability to suppress NF-kappa-beta. And there are several recent um, clinical trials using curcumin as a therapy, as an intervention in pancreatic cancer and in colon cancer. In these studies, um, the patients enrolled in the study had it sort of exhausted all other treatment options or were not eligible for other treatment options. And yet curcumin, in a fairly reasonable dose, was shown to be quite effective at halting the progression of the disease. In pancreatic cancer, that's a, a disease we think is very aggressive. So there's a really powerful way to do this. Now I start thinking, we know that in nature, things like to multitask and they like to work synergistically. Not only is that true in the biochemistry, it's also true in the, on the taste bud thing, right? So I start looking at this and I'm thinking, 
yeah, I could just throw turmeric on my stir fry, but if instead I went with a whole curried kind of thing, I could probably get eight or nine of these different spices into my meal, right? Or I could, it's breakfast time, and I think I'll do chai, because that nice spiced Indian tea, and I'll use green tea as my base instead of black tea, because everybody knows green tea is good for fighting cancer. And then I'll have, again, eight or nine of my different spices working synergistically. So as you look at this, this, this is a way to stock your spice cabinet. It's also your to-do list when you're making a meal to get those spices in there. And then we like to use these in my office as a handout. Whenever I talk about a concept that I do, I try to look through the literature and, and give you what are the top ten in terms of foods that we now know that can modify gene expression. So if you're looking to get a power meal, then you're going to do your spices and the brassica family vegetables. That's all your broccoli, cabbage, mizuna, turnips, wasabi. Everybody is delighted to hear that that's a cruciferous vegetable. Broccoli sprouts I put separately because they pack a really powerful punch. The constituents that are in them, you only need a small amount of broccoli spots to get, it's like a, a quarter cup of broccoli sprouts is like two cups of broccoli in terms of the constituents there. Your dark leafy green vegetables, garlic, onions, leeks, chives, shallots. These are heavy hitters in terms of their ability to talk to your genes. Uh, luteolin, which is found in parsley and celery and red pepper, again, very potent in its ability. It's an HDAC inhibitor, so it really gets down in there where the genes are and really makes a difference. Um, peanuts, uh, boiled uh, red grapes, wine, a source of resveratrol onions, capers, which are a source of quercetin, green tea we talked about a little bit, and then your B vitamins, which would be found in fish, sunflower seeds, eggs, cheeses. We'll talk more about eggs and cheese a little bit later, asparagus and almonds. So, you know, this is the, you know, I start, I start making up meals just looking at that. I start, I'll, she just fed me a lovely lunch, <laughs> and I'm still thinking about food here. Rebecca, talk to us about how to, uh, well, let's talk share. about that. Let's talk about the meal we just ate. Okay. Okay. So I have my little basket of yum here. And Jeannie and I went to the farmer's market this morning. And I thought, oh, God, wouldn't it be great if I just brought this basket? Because, I mean, there's nothing like looking at it live, right? So in my basket, since I know that people are listening and they can't see it, I'm just going to introduce you to my friends here. So this is uh, red chard. So that constitutes as a dark leafy. And um, I also have in here the cutest little bunch of kale, lacinato kale. It's hiding though, but I'm sure I'll find it. And then um, I have this great broccoli. Look at that. It's, it's just, I mean, I, I get so excited. Okay. Um, here's something that's not green, but it's a delicata squash. And this is what we did for lunch. I split open the delicata squash, and then um, I scooped the seeds out. And then I took a little bit of olive oil, and in the olive oil, I got in cinnamon, cumin, coriander, red chili, some sea salt, 
some allspice, which has a lot of those spices already in there. And I whisked it together and I brushed it on my delicata squash. And I flipped my delicata squash over so it's face down. And I put it in a 400 degree oven and let it roast for 25 minutes. Meanwhile, Jean took some garlic and she sliced it up. And I want you to tell them, Jean, the, well, you sliced it up, but you let it, we didn't take it directly to the pan. Yeah, right? the cancer-fighting constituent that's in the garlic is the um, in. Allicin. But what's in the actual raw garlic is allicin. And there's an enzyme that converts it to the cancer fighter. And that enzymatic process takes about five or ten minutes to happen. So if you crush your garlic and add it immediately to a cooking pot, you're not getting the full benefit. So I was telling Rebecca, every time I come to the kitchen to cook a meal, I haven't decided what I'm making yet, and I'm getting the garlic ready. And then I start looking through the pantry and saying, oh, this is what we're making. And that way I have, I know I'm going to use garlic, because I put garlic in everything, right? So it's already ready by the time I've decided what I'm making. So if you've been adding it to the pot and heating it right away, give it a, give it a couple minutes to sit and convert. The enzymes will convert it. Go ahead. So then we took... Our dark leafy greens, here's my kale, down at the bottom. Oh. Is that adorable? It's like a little bouquet. It's a little bouquet. So um, anyway, and it was grown in Bolinas. So there you have it. So um, we took, you know how intimidating these can be, right? I mean, you could like make a bouquet out of this. In fact, Saja Greenwood just gave us two little herb bouquets with garlic. Mm. NF-kappa-beta inhibiting bouquets, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> right? And um, thank you for that. That's a chive that just fell. So anyway, um, what do you do with these? I mean, do you put them in a vase and look at them? Do you put them in the refrigerator crisper drawer and then you think, well, by osmosis... I'll get all the, you know, sulforaphane um, from the kale just by it being, the virtue of it being in my refrigerator. Well, it doesn't quite work that way because then two weeks later you open the refrigerator and you have a science experiment. So um, immediately when we got back from the farmer's market after chopping the, slicing the garlic and letting it aerate and after putting the squash in the oven, Jean took to um, the dark leafies, and basically, um, she did what I call she she did a little uh, strip tease. So, and basically, what that is is this just ripping that green, dark green, off of this kind of little stalk here, and so now. My big bouquet is now reducing itself into bite-sized pieces. So all of a sudden, it's approachable, these dark leafy greens. It's not this big, you know, mountain. It's like not Mount Vesuvius. So, and then you just take these dark leafy greens and you put them in a little bit of water and just give them a little, you know, swirl. And then we heat, we take the pan and we heat the um, pan up first, and then we put in a little extra virgin olive oil, and then we put in 
some red chili pepper flakes and I'm rummaging around in my basket. <laughs> oh my gosh! These Wait. are also an excellent inhibitor of NF-kappa-beta. They're beautiful. I mean, see, this is the fun part when you get to see it live. Okay, so these are, these, these are fresh. This is the time to get them and you can hang them upside down and dry them. And in a lot of Italian kitchens and you'll see this. So um, anyway, spritz of red chili pepper goes into the oil to infuse the oil and then the garlic goes in, sizzle, right? And then, um, then we put the dark leafies in and then we hear that nice, that, that sound, what I call it, it's the sound of cooking. I have to replicate this for, you know, because it's podcast, it's like virtual cooking. Okay. <laughs> What? Can you smell it? Can you smell it? So, um, and then we put in um, a pinch of salt and um, because that's starting to release the natural flavors of those dark leafy greens. And it also, the salt acts as like, it goes into the little nerve endings of the taste buds and makes them wake up, especially if you're dealing with transient taste changes. So now we're sauteing our greens and then... Mm, we're smelling the squash that's roasting in the oven with that cinnamon wafting out. And remember, this is the food that's changing gene expression. Isn't this great? It's like aromatherapy. And, you know, here we go. So then the squash is ready, and I get out two pretty bowls, and I put the squash in the bowl, and then I take those dark leafy greens with the garlic and the red chili pepper flakes and the salt, and I take the zest from the lemon right? And put some lemon zest on it. And the lemon zest gene does... It's an NF-kappa-beta inhibitor, but it's also such an amazing source of that limonene. And limonene, it's the volatile oil. If you ever took a, if you're peeling an orange or any other citrus, and you notice that little spray of oil that comes up, and it's, it fills the room with that beautiful scent. Um, limonene has been shown to turn off the RAS oncogene. And it's been used at clinical trials at the NCI in breast cancer, in prostate cancer. It's been shown to be about as effective as chemotherapy in halting the growth of many types of cancer. So this is a simple, if you don't have one of those zesters, you know, you, that, that's a, an essential kitchen tool so that you can be grading zest into your greens and uh, in your chai and anywhere else that you're inspired to. Yes, it's a, a microplaner or if you have a wood shop, a wood rasp. You know, just rub it across your your lemon or your lime or your orange. So, but even, I mean, not even more important than what it does, but it brings the food to life. So it's like all of a sudden, it's like in a spritz of lemon juice, all of a sudden your taste buds are really alive. So I take the greens with the lemon zest and all the goodies and then I place them in like the, the squash is now acting like a bowl and the greens sit in it. And with delicata squash, you can eat the skin because it's nice and thin. So here we are and we're just sitting down and we've had, we've gotten in our dark leafy greens, we've gotten in our beta carotene, we've gotten in our NF-kappa-beta inhibitors, we've gotten in our limonene, we've gotten in our allicin. We've got, we've got a whole bunch of yum going on. And it's changing gene expression. Yeah.
Maybe so that's what, one very important thing to remember is that unlike a drug or unlike a, you know, your doctor's appointment that you go once every three months, every six months, every year, however long you're going, three times a day, every day, day after day, you're eating food that can influence your genes and help you fight cancer or help you prevent cancer. So let's talk about the next area in that oncometabolism, which is about insulin resistance and cancer. And um, this is my second most favorite thing, so hence we're doing it second. But it, there's been sort of a war in the field for a, a great number of years, at least since the 1920s, about sugar and whether it mattered or not when you have cancer. Is sugar even relevant? I mean, don't all the body cells need sugar? And there have been a number of studies that have begun to explore this topic about, well, is sugar an issue? Is it a concern? And so here I'm just profiling on the, on the left-hand side, you see an animal study. On the right-hand side, you have the results of a human study. We'll look at George Santisteban's study first, that animal study. And this is a really in intriguing. He used human breast cancer cells. He injected the mice with the breast cancer cells and then fed them different diets to produce different blood sugars. So he had a low-sugar diet, a moderate-sugar diet, and a high-sugar diet. And he was basically putting the sugar in their drinking water so they have their regular lab chow. So it would sort of be like walking around with a big gulp if you were a human to get the extra sugar, right? And what he found was that you, the survival could be predicted by how much, where their blood sugar was. So that those animals who kept a low blood sugar because they weren't being fed the sugar water, they had a long survival at the end of the study. Most of them were still alive. Whereas the animals who had access to the sugar and their blood sugar level was high, they didn't survive as long. So scroll forward some 20 years, and we have Rachel Durr at Johns Hopkins University who takes this question and says, well, what about in humans? And we won't talk about why it took them so long to think about looking in humans, but <laughs> nonetheless. So she took individuals who were diagnosed with a, a grade 4 brain tumor, a really aggressive type of cancer that often has about a six-month prognosis. Um, and she had these people just at diagnosis, she measured their blood sugar. This is not an intervention study, so they didn't intervene. They just wanted to observe what would, you know, what happens to the people with high versus low blood sugar. And what they found was there was a fairly significant, about a five months different survival. And if you're, you know, usually thinking about this is a, a six, and if you're lucky, a 12 month survival, that's a significant you know, it's, it's not only statistically significant, but if it was me, getting extra five months would be very significant, um, just by their blood sugar. So that, that's, you know, we begin to see, gee, it looks like there is some effect about sugar. Now, I think why it's been so confusing is that it's not really the sugar itself that's the concern. We do know that cancer cells are obligate sugar feeders. They eat sugar. That's what they're getting their energy from. They're not efficient at using that energy, so they need to eat a lot of sugar. But it's not just about that. What it really looks like it's about is insulin resistance. And this is a state that develops in our bodies when over the course of our lives we've eaten a considerable share of carbohydrate so that we're, are, we are giving our cells the insulin message over and over and over again and eventually the cells say, I have enough fuel, I don't want to listen to you insulin, and they become resistant. And that state of insulin resistance, it's not only a, a you know, it's like the sugar, it's like, whoa, it looks like there's some effect to sugar. But when you start looking through the literature about insulin resistance in cancer, 
bingo, you've hit the jackpot. The research there is very strong that insulin resistance is bad news for someone who wants to prevent cancer, for somebody who has cancer and is going through treatment, or for someone who's finished their treatment and wants not to have cancer again. So, and again, I've given you a smattering of studies on this particular slide so you get a little cross-section of the research. But what we're finding is that patients who are insulin resistant in breast cancer, there's a three-fold increase in having a risk of recurrence over five years if you're insulin resistant versus those who are not insulin resistant. Um, in colon cancer, if you're insulin resistant, it's, again, a much greater likelihood of the cancer spreading or of having recurrence. Um, when they've looked at post-surgery for cancer. Those who have the complications, it's usually those who are insulin resistant. If you're getting a bone marrow transplant, some people get very severe infections and complications. It's usually the individuals who have insulin resistance. You can predict this. And uh, um, often not recognized fact and concern is that when you're insulin resistant, it drives your estrogen up. So if you have an estrogen-sensitive cancer, like a, a breast cancer, but many other cancers are also estrogen-sensitive, this can be a major concern for you. When you're insulin-resistant, it increases your estrogen by increasing the activity of aromatase, an enzyme in our fat cells that converts androgens into estrogen. And it decreases your liver's ability to make a binding protein that called sex hormone binding globulin, that when it's bound to your estrogen, it stops it from talking directly to the tissue. So the net effect of being insulin resistant is there's more estrogen circulating and it's, it's not bound, it's free to act on the tissues. So this business of insulin resistance is a major concern for us. And it's something that we can do with our diet to shift and get rid of. So one of the things that I wanna, um, I want to show you is that unlike the old theory about, well, sugar is feeding the cancer cells directly, what we've learned recently, if we look across the literature, is that this business about insulin's effect on the cancer cells and insulin resistance, it actually impacts the cancer through six or seven different mechanisms or pathways that are all working together. So it's really significant. When there's insulin resistance, it directly damages the DNA. So it might be something that's contributing to the development of cancer in the beginning. It increases mitosis, that's the cell division where a cancer cell divides and makes two daughter cells. And then the daughter cells undergo mitosis and they each make two and very quickly you have a growing number of cancer cells and that's stimulated by insulin resistance. Um, healthy cells undergo a programmed cell death. When they reach the end of their cycle, then like a leaf dropping off the tree, they come to an end, aptosis. But in cancer cells, they evade that process, and insulin resistance inhibits that, that aptosis. It also stimulates the angiogenesis, which I mentioned briefly at the beginning. We won't talk a lot about that, but again, the development of new blood vessels that allows a small cluster of cancer cells, as it develops that rich new network of, of blood vessels, it brings more food to it. It's able to grow faster. Many of the new drugs that are cancer fighters, like Avastin, inhibit that angiogenesis, and yet if a person's insulin resistant, they're sort of undoing the effects of the Avastin. 
And the insulin resistance also directly promotes cell migration. So uh, invasion of the cancer into the local area and then a metastasis, a spread to a different place. That's driven by this <coughs> insulin resistance. So you can see there's a host of different ways that being insulin resistant could promote cancer. And if you're a scientist or you're working in the field or you're a doctor, Cowie and Hardy, this review paper that summarizes all this research is just beautiful. There's a diagram in there that you'll study and learn all these pathways if you're a chart geek like me, it'll make you really excited. Okay, so who, 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 who's facing insulin resistance? Am I insulin resistant? Are you? And in, in, in the field, the diagnosis of this is often called prediabetes or metabolic syndrome. And, you know, you might know that many people know that it's like the apple-shaped body when you start to gain weight and you're gaining it not in your hips and your thighs so much, but in your abdomen, that that's a sign of insulin resistance. So what I've done here is I've given you a chart of the factors that might be signs you're facing some insulin resistance. I've given you the, quote, diagnostic cutoff point. There are three or four in the medical literature different organizations that have set the criteria for insulin resistance to diagnose this as a condition. Um, and if you have three or more of these, then you might have this. I, I, for me, when I'm looking at lab values that come out of, you know, you, I went and got my blood draw and I got my numbers back and the lab says I'm okay. That's not good enough for me. Because when I go through the literature and I'm, I'm looking through all the scientific papers, I'm asking a different question. What I'm saying is I don't care what the population average is and if the average American has this number. What I want to know is at what specific range do cancer patients have an advantage? You know, if it's normal to have a cholesterol of 210, but everybody with a cholesterol of 220 survives cancer twice as long, then I don't care what the doctor thinks is normal. I want everybody where the studies show me there's an advantage. So on the far right of this chart, you see the optimal range. This is for me reviewing lots of studies about in terms of, of not having insulin resistance, of really having good blood sugar levels. What would you be striving for to put yourself in the, I'm getting an A plus, not just a passing grade. So in terms of insulin resistance, you see that waist-to-hip ratio go up, where the waist is larger than the hips. Your glucose may go up, but it also might not. You might have a completely normal glucose. Well, how does that work? When I'm just looking at your glucose, I'm asking myself, was, well, that's a beautiful glucose, but how much insulin did she have to secrete to get the glucose at that level? It doesn't tell you when you're just looking at the glucose. So if you've just only seen your glucose, you don't have enough information yet. And look at some of these other tests. If your fasting glucose is running high, then you know you're running into a problem. Your A1C, or glycated hemoglobin A1C, this is a test that's not dependent on fasting. When there's too much sugar in your bloodstream, as a backup mechanism, your body is glycating or attaching it to your hemoglobin and your red blood cells. And in a normal person, you see about 4 or 5% of their red blood cells have the sugar stuck to it. Um, if you get above 6%, you're in the diabetic range. Some studies have suggested that cancer patients who keep theirs below, some studies say 5.0, 5.2, you know, in the lower part of this range, have a very significant survival advantage triglycerides will go up above, in my opinion, you want to keep them below 110, even though your doctor says you're fine as long as you're not above 150. Your good cholesterol will be too low. That's a sign you're eating too many carbohydrates and not getting enough exercise or omega-3 fats. We'll talk about that later. Your blood pressure will grow up, and your uric acid can also go up, often a sign that you're getting too much fructose. So if you have 
two, three of these and you're fighting cancer, this would be a place where it's like, wow, I just found this whole new avenue I could be working on with my diet to really improve my odds of healing. So how do we get this insulin resistance? And the problem is that our diets are full of foods that are high glycemic. And when you first see this picture, you have some rice, some pasta, some bread. You might be thinking if you have been schooled in the pyramid. Has anybody been schooled in the food pyramid? Right? What is at the base of the pyramid? Starches. How many servings a day are we instructed as a healthy amount of these? Six to 11 servings per day. It's like, yeah, if I were working out in the gym about eight hours a day, I might be able to maintain my weight on six to, eight, uh, six to 11 carbohydrates. For a cancer patient, what we find is this, this is too much starch. And if you're insulin resistant, that daily, you know, at every meal, amount of starch is too much for you. So the foods that are concerned here are things like bread, cereal, pasta, crackers. These foods are high glycemic. Fruits, fruit juices particularly, dried fruits, not necessarily fruit alone in moderation. Um, Gluten-free foods, so many of those. When I'm thinking gluten-free, I'm thinking I'm eating protein, healthy fats, and a basket of vegetables. I'm not talking about packaged foods that are, are very high glycemic. So these are the foods. By the way, if you want to look up the glycemic, lo glycemic load of a food, I've given you two websites where you can do this. Any food that's 10 or higher is considered high glycemic. So it, with our clients, we say, you know, depending on where your parameters for insulin resistance are, you know, let, let's say somebody who comes in and we want their, their uh, A1C at 5.2 and they're at 5.3. They just have a couple of minor steps to make, a little more exercise, a little bit of care. But somebody who comes in and their A1C is 6.8, and we're shooting for under 5.2, these foods are on your no-no list. And I'm not good at taking stuff away from people, because I think that's counterintuitive. It, it, my belief is that the subconscious does not hear the word no or not. So while you are sitting there saying, I will not eat ice cream, <laughs> your subconscious hears, I will eat ice cream. <laughs> so I don't think that works. So instead, I, I want to show you what I would do instead. Okay, so here are some examples of this. And what I've done is these are, are portion sizes, a cup. Obviously, you're not going to eat a cup of white flour, but I want to show you the difference in a recipe. If you were baking something from scratch at home and you were using a cup of white or wheat flour, remembering that 10 is high on the glycemic index, a cup of white flour is 76. Whole wheat flour is better, but you're still at 44. What if you were baking and used almond flour? It's a protein and a fiber or coconut flour. There are ample recipes on the web. You can find these. A lot of bloggers are into you know, using these. There's a beautiful almond flour cookbook where you can make cookies and breads and muffins that are made out of protein instead of being made by carb with carbohydrate. So that would be a nice substitute. Corn, you could do baby corn. Instead of 35, that'll be five, although it is sort of hard to hold. <laughs> No, <laughs> I don't suggest eating it that way. Cut it up and put it in stir-fry or in soups. Instead of a ham hamburger bun, you could use a rice paper wrap. My favorite is portobello mushroom. Uh, you stick it on the grill or it can go in the oven just enough to warm it up and it loses some of its moisture so it's a little drier. This takes mushroom burger to a whole new level. It's delicious. Um, romaine lettuce is a nice way so that you're not getting those, you know, that extra glycemic load and you make sort of like a lettuce wrap with it. Instead of brown rice, you could use cauliflower. Instead of pasta noodles, I like zucchini noodles. 
They're delicious. I grate them with my mandolin so that they're long, thin strips. And I like to salt them and let them lose their moisture because they get more of an al dente pasta texture that way. Rinse the salt off. And then I only cook them for one or two minutes. Pile your sauce or whatever you like on them. <laughs> Rebecca will tell you more how to do that kind of stuff. And instead of mashed pota potatoes, mashed cauliflower. A lot of people think the taste is really close and similar enough. Look at the difference in, again, instead of you want to be under 10, your mashed potatoes are 16 on the glycemic load, and mashed cauliflower would be, for the same size serving, only four. So this is a way to have some creative substitutes where you are still eating some foods that are recognizably yummy for you, but you're not you know, pushing that glycemic load all the time. Uh, miracle noodles are also called shirataki noodles. They are made from the fiber of yams. So there's no carbohydrate. They're all soluble fiber. And you find them like in uh, the health food store, usually in the refrigerator section. They come in a little um, sealed noodle package that has it's in water. And just drain the water out. And They don't need to be cooked. They just need to be heated. So. Okay, so... Addressing your insulin resistance is mostly about diet. So instead of the 6 to 11 servings of carbohydrate, we're asking our clients, depending again on their parameters for insulin resistance, between 1 and 3 servings. And then I just, I'm not one for shooting in the dark. I like to know what's happening. So we have our clients, we send them as, go get a bunch of lab tests that will show us these parameters of the oncometal, you know, where, what's your baseline? Then you do an experiment and eat better. And then we come back in three months and repeat the tests and see, did that work? If your numbers were here high before and now they're here, we say, pat you on the back, congratulations, keep doing this, it's working for you. If you're only half the way there, you know you need to double your efforts a little bit. So it's a nice way to do that. Um, you're choosing the foods with a low glycemic load. You might want to avoid liquid calories. They're, you know, like sodas and fruit juices, they're very high on glycemic load. And avoid evening snacking. Your body's ability to regulate your blood sugar is strongest first thing in the morning. And it goes down progressively as you go through the day. So if you're planning a treat or something, you don't want to do that in the evening. Um, you, if, if you lose muscle mass as we get earlier, and if you go through treatment, you've lost muscle mass, your muscle takes up glucose. So when you have less muscle, then you might be eating the same diet, but your blood sugar is higher. So you want to have some form of movement that builds your muscle back and certain nutrient deficiencies. Um, these are our top 10 foods for glycemic control. I don't think I have yet. This is, I'm going back and giving Rebecca a chance to to share with us? Well, I'm going back into my basket and I'm trying to locate the cutest little bundle of cauliflower, but, and I'm sure it's hiding here somewhere. Ah, here it is. So I think cauliflower needs like a whole PR campaign. <laughs> it just gets such bad press and it's really I think it's because of the way it was prepared like growing up in my kitchen and maybe because it was boiled so long it has that sulfury smell so there are a couple ways that I like to do um, cauliflower um, and Jeannie was talking about doing cauliflower mashed potatoes and you can you can I'm sure Jeannie's got recipes I love to roast cauliflower it makes it sweeter and then if you want to take your potato masher 
and just mash it and, you know, put some olive oil in it and salt and whatever. It's luscious. Um, I also, like, you can make cauliflower rice by just shaving it really thin and sauteing it. And it kind of, you know, like in the bottom of a dish, let's say like a curry or something instead of rice. Dirty rice. Dirty rice. With all those Cajun spices. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you can really, you can have fun with this. It doesn't have a big marketing campaign behind it. There's, there's no, no spokesperson? There's for no it. spokesperson for this. Yet. <laughs> Yet, right. It doesn't have any, you know, splashy labels on it, but it's really, um, actually, it's, it can be one of those, what I call, like, innocuous, like, background foods. So it sort of kind of can, it's like a, a canvas, which you can paint on in terms of like your spices and adding other playmates to it. This is a good food for that. It's not overpowering, despite what we all might have thought growing up. And then I pulled out this pomegranate because one of the things that's, that Jeannie touched on um, is fats. And um, good fats are really, really your, your best friend when you're talking about regulating your glycemic load because it slow, slows the release of insulin. So one of my, the avocado was a food that was on the, is on the list, right? And um, one of the things that I love is making a guacamole with a little bit of red onion, just smashing up the avocado, adding like um, a tablespoon of finely diced red onion, and then um, chopping up some Mint. There's that mint again. And mint has... <clears throat> of all the NF-kappa beta inhibitors, when they were studying <laughs> these herbs for anti-angiogenesis, the ability to stop the growth of the blood vessels, mint was the most potent of all the herbs and spices tested. Here you go. Growing in your garden. <laughs> right? And, and Saja and I, this is like the first thing we talk about. Right, Saja? Mint. Mint, mint tea, mint, and the and the best thing, um, Jean, is that you don't need a lot of it, right? You don't need a no, lot. No, so it's not like you have to eat this whole bunch of mint. I think it was like the studies are like, you know, like maybe about that much. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah, like five or six leaves. So I'm like a big proponent of wherever I can put mint, I'm putting mint. So I decided mint in my guacamole and then for a twist, because it's fall and pomegranates are out, um, I like folding in some pomegranate seeds into the guacamole. So you've got this really pretty picture. And of course, pomegranates have their own nutritional profile. Yeah, and in fact, a researcher in Israel, um, Ephraim Lansky, has published several dozen studies about the anti-cancer effects of pomegranate and shown that in uh, panc not, po prostate cancer, not pancreatic, <coughs> prostate cancer, it's a really potent anti-tumor that that has gone through now to human studies and it's been confirmed. And there's quite a bit of research in breast cancer and ovarian cancer as well. It has many different gene in, um, 
regulating constituents in it. So ellagic acid and resveratrol, and it's a really a powerhouse vegetable. And it's not just the juice, it's also the oil that's inside the seeds. So using the whole fruit and not just the juice is really wise. It makes a lovely wine replacement for somebody who's not drinking wine, like at room temperature, and you just put it in a wine goblet, and it's nothing's going to be wine. We all know that. But if you're not allowed to have wine, having some of the same tannins and complexity of flavor to play off your meal, it's a nice substitute with lots of anti-cancer fighting value. So here you've got this, you know, your avocado now has been turned into, you know, um, major can you know, all these wonderful foods that are regulating your insulin. And then you take um, another vegetable that needs a major PR campaign, too, called the jicama, which I don't have with me. But, you know, it's that big old ugly, you know, fruit vegetable with that tough skin um, that's really got this lovely white flesh that's really crispy and crunchy inside. And you can make some just jicama sticks and you can just take that jicama and take a big old dollop of that guacamole and just, you know, be in heaven. Yum. That is a flavor carrier and it helps in making us feel satiated. So also lowering insulin, but make us feel satiated. <clears throat> Back to you, Jean. About yeah, okay. So the last area that we're going to talk about is inflammation and cancer. And uh, when I first started talking about inflammation and cancer 15 years ago, people were really confused. But now I think it's really come out in the mainstream, and many more people are aware that inflammation is a promoter and that drugs that are anti-inflammatory, like Celebrex, are being tested against cancer and being shown to be powerful. So I think many people listening will be aware that this is a concern for cancer. I love opening with this beautiful study by Don McMillan. This was an early study, um, 774 cancer patients with various different types of cancer. It's not an intervention study, just an observational study. At the, at the diagnosis, their inflammation was measured with a test called the C-reactive protein. And then he waited for near to three years to find out, was there a relationship between the inflammation and survival? And what you see here on this slide is the survival of those with high or elevated inflammation in purple. You see their survival dropping off as you go across the 1,000 days the study was um, over. And then you see those with a low or no inflammatory response at the time of their diagnosis and look at their survival. It's really quite good. This is a really significant difference in the survival. And for me, the thing that really was eye-opening when I read this study was that inflammation was a better predictor of survival than stage of disease. <laughs> Let's put that a different way. Those people who had stage four cancer and low inflammation were longer survivors in many instances than those people who had early stage disease but high inflammation. Wow. Yeah, that's really significant. You know, so if, if you're fighting cancer and you don't know what your C-reactive protein is, you're wanting to march into your doctor's office at that next appointment and say, can we measure my inflammation because, you know, I don't have a control over a lot of things. I don't have a universal remote control for my cancer with an on and off button. But inflammation and insulin resistance is like having a volume button. You know, you do have some influence and you want to exert that influence if you can. 
So other findings, and again, if, if you were to get on PubMed and look for human studies of inflammation and outcomes with cancer, there are several hundred studies. It's really significant here. Toxicity of chemotherapy. Who are the people who really get hit hard when they go through chemotherapy? It's often those who have significant inflammation. That wasting syndrome, some of us would like to lose some weight, but others, when you're fighting cancer, you get into that syndrome, cachexia, where you're losing weight and you don't want to. It's unwanted unwanted wasting away and muscle loss. And that's driven by inflammation. So those people are, you know, trying to get the calories in and it doesn't stem the weight loss. Unless you control the inflammation, the weight just keeps coming off. And there's also quality of life issues. Studies that have looked at fatigue, energy levels, quality of life have found that those who do not have an elevated inflammation do so much better with their quality of life. Okay, where does inflammation come from? It comes from the fat in our diet. The fats that we eat become the cell membranes of all of the cells in our body. And then those fats uh, go through a metabolizing process that creates either pro-inflammatory compounds or anti, they're actually less inflammatory, but considerably so. So we, we call those the anti-inflammatory compounds. The difference in the fats is which family they belong to. We have our omega-6 fats, and you find that in commercially raised meat, dairy products, eggs, most nuts and seeds, except for flax seeds, for example, most vegetable oils. So when you're in that aisle, the oil aisle, that always scares me when I walk down that aisle, but bottles of corn and soy and all kinds of oils which are very, very unhealthy for you. Those are all omega-6s. And the anti-inflammatory effect comes from omega-3s. Omega-3s come from cold water fish, from meat, poultry, and dairy. If those foods are, the animals are raised on pasture, if they're, you know, loose and they're eating grass, grass is a source of omega-3s. Um, also black walnuts or flax seeds, and uh, some oils like hemp seed oil, um, canola oil, which I don't recommend. It's often genetically modified, and it's used for cooking, and yet omega-3 is really unstable in heat. So it's a source, but it wouldn't be one I would recommend. It's on the list so you know that it's where it's coming from. Okay, so these fats make up your cell membranes, and then the cell membranes, when they need to communicate, go down through an enzyme pathway. That's either the COX enzyme or the LOX enzyme. You see those. And they make these inflammatory compounds that are promoting tumor growth and progression, promoting angiogenesis, and suppressing your immune system. So as you can imagine, you really want to, it's sort of like a seesaw here. You know, it's like, which fat are you eating more of? Are you eating more of the omega-6s and you're leaning towards inflammation? Or are you eating, you know, the omega-3s in ratio? It's not that the omega-6s are bad and you will never eat one again after you step out of here. No, it's not that. You, they're essential. You still need to eat them. But it's about the ratio. We want a nice healthy ratio of one-to-one -one or two parts of omega-6 to one part of omega-3. Um, but most Americans are eating 10, 20, 40 times more omega-6 than they are omega-3. So for the anti-inflammatory, you want first lots of fruits and vegetables. Those cox and lox enzymes that take the fats and make them into inflammatory compounds are oxidizing enzymes. So if you're eating lots of brightly colored fruits and vegetables with antioxidants, you're not converting those fats to inflammatory compounds as much. 
Then you want to shift the omega-3s and omega-6s by decreasing the vegetable oils. Don't eat margarine. Don't eat commercially raised meats, poultry, and eggs, or limit. You know, not like, I'll never eat those again. Gene Wallace said I can't, but you want to really limit that. And instead, you're increasing cold water fish, knowing that small fishies are less polluted in their environment than large fishies. So sardines, for example, would be a cleaner source than a, a large uh, tuna or, or other large fish. Um, if you choose to eat animal foods, grass-fed, grass-finished, meat, poultry, dairy, and omega-3 rich eggs, hopefully those chickens are running wild and they're not factory chickens that are fed flaxseed to get omega-3. Uh, walnuts, hemp, chia, flaxseed meal, leafy green vegetables. And then, just to go back for a second, the glycemic thing. If you have insulin resistance, it doesn't really matter how much omega-3 you have. Insulin resistance sort of shifts this whole pathway towards inflammation. So dealing with insulin resistance is really important in terms of also getting your inflammation under control. Here we have our top 10 foods. And you'll see some of the foods are here as well. And so if you're also looking to talk to your genes and to address insulin resistance as well as dealing with inflammation, some of the foods that you see like olive oil on each of the lists, that's a, that's a staple in your pantry. It's something that you're using frequently. So here we have spices are good at inhibiting inflammation. NF-kappa-beta drives inflammation. So we see the spices again. Uh, cold water fish, grass-fed uh, pastured meats and uh, other animal foods, hot peppers, which that Rebecca was um, waving earlier in their beautiful bouquet, uh, olive oil, leafy green vegetables, the cruciferous vegetables being the broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower family, um, anything that's rich in carotenoids, so pumpkin, butternut squash, yam, persimmon, carrot, those are good anti-inflammatories, chocolate, Lots of smiles, yay. Dark chocolate, <laughs> not milk chocolate that's full of sugar, but dark chocolate is actually quite low in the glycemic index, and the flavanols are very anti-inflammatory. So a square or two of dark chocolate fitting into the diet, definitely room for that, and berries also being a good source. Becca, will you teach us something fascinating about how to get to the power of yum? Ah, uh, well, I want to be conscious of the time. Okay. So, um... I'm going to, I can go for it. Okay. Well, do we have our next slide? Our last slide? Oh, here. Okay. Um, I have this acronym and the acronym is called FAS, F-A-S-S. -S. And it is the trick. It's part of the power of yum. It's the trick to getting to the power of yum. So I have mentioned them interspersed throughout the conversation, but Fat, and I mean good fats like olive oil and avocados and nuts and nut creams and nut butters and and uh, good pasture raised butter and and uh, yogurt, anything like that. Mm -hmm. What it is is it it coats the taste buds. It's it's sort of like a magic carpet that transverses the taste buds, going back and forth, and it carries flavor. And it makes us feel satiated. And when we're satiated, right, then we don't, it's like our body feels nourished, all right? Then the A in FAST stands for acid. And I get my acid from lemons, limes, oranges, maybe a touch of balsamic vinegar, 
but primarily from citrus. And what um, acid does is it's like an animated Pixar character. It, it takes the food and it makes it bright. And um, it also stimulates the salivary glands. So when we talk about mouth-watering, that's what we mean. So acid does that. So if you have a food that's kind of like, God, this is tasting a little dull, right? Um, it, it, you know, you can liven it up with, you know, a little bit, a, a spritz of lemon. And then salt. I use sea salt with its 80 plus minerals. And sea salt is, is less bitter than regular table salt, which has been bleached. So um, you need less to um, stimulate those nerve endings. And what, what salt does, because remember, our whole foods don't have any, anything. They don't have, they're just who they are. So when I'm using salt and good fats and lemons, and um, I'm using it to bring out the natural flavors of these foods and to make them come alive in your mouth and to carry those herbs and spices. So sometimes people think of salt and they go, I can't. Yes, you can. And you should. You should season. You should season your food well with your, if you're cooking with whole foods. Um, because salt also brings the flavor up to the top of the palate where the yum button is. And the yum button is that involuntary spasm of vocal delight when you go, mmm. Like, it's like you taste something and all of a sudden it just tastes great. And you're like, mmm. You don't even realize you're saying it. And that's, that is the power of yum where, you know, that great taste and all this amazing information, this great nutrition, sit together at the table. It's not, it's not like, oh, um, I have to eat nutritiously, so therefore I can't have any great flavor and um, I can't be nourished. In order to really <laughs> achieve nourishment and feel satiated through and through, then then. All of these have to come together. And then the last S in fast is sweet. And sweet is sort of the, the swan song, the, the siren song. And it's the first taste we come into of the world. And it's the last taste that we leave with. So I use just very small amounts sometimes of, of grape bee maple syrup. Or maybe I'll use... Um, some fruits, or maybe I'll use some caramelized onions, whatever it is, to kind of round out a flavor. So all of these are a part of making everything sort of all in concert. Good fats, good acid, good salt and sweet. Just like going back to that little squash with the greens. It all had a little bit of fat, a little bit of acid, a little bit of salt, and a little bit of sweet. And that is the trick to getting to yum. And it's really the trick of feeling nourished. And the good news is that when you put the power of yum in, when you use fast, each of those steps that, you know, a chef comes by like, how can I make this, this taste wow? Each of those steps actually increases the nutrient value you're going to get out of that food. So, for example, you have your kale. When you're putting it in a pan with olive oil, 
it's not just because you're trying to make it not stick to the pan. The nutrients, the phytonutrients and the minerals and such that are in the kale, uh, and particularly the carotenoids like lutein, those aren't absorbable without fat. So if you were to eat the kale no fat and completely plain, I just steamed it, you wouldn't get the benefit of those nutrients. The acid, when she's sprinkling the lemon or some other citrus over the kale, that increases the absorption of minerals from that particular food. The salt, whole foods are very high in potassium, but they don't really have a lot of sodium. In fact, they're almost deficient in sodium. And for energy levels, really important when you go through cancer treatment, you want to keep a really nice two-to-one ratio, two parts potassium, one part sodium. So if you're not getting that sodium, your energy lags. So adding the salt is a really good way to keep the energy up. So it, each of the, the power of yum things that you're talking about, and they're on the chart there, it shows you what's the job in the kitchen and, and the taste buds, and what's the job of that step in terms of how it increases the nutri- nutritional value of the food that you're eating. All right. Well, thank you both very much. Let's, I have some questions, and then we're going to open it up for your questions. That was wonderful and entertaining, so thank you. (laughs) Um, I want to talk to you both about some of the controversies that we hear a lot of when we're talking to people or when people come in and are are asking um, about their diet. And one of them that's real common is soy. What about soy? What about its its estrogenic properties? And, And what do you recommend? I get this question so often I've prepared a slide on it. So um, <laughs> I think the, I didn't know that. The, the big concern that really comes up here is that soy contains constituents that have been called phytoestrogens or plant estrogens. But let's be clear here. There's not actually any estrogen in soy itself. What it does contain are constituents that are selective estrogen receptor modulators. What this is is it has the ability, sort of think of a lock and a key. Um, Estrogen has an estrogen receptor, and it is itself the key that goes in and turns on an estrogenic effect, which in the case of cancer we don't want. Mm -hmm. Soy is like a key that you might have that fits into that door, but you go to turn on the effect and you don't get an estrogenic effect. Or you get an effect that's 1,000 to 10,000 times weaker. Like tamoxifen. Like tamoxifen is also a CIRM, Mm -hmm. a selective estrogen receptor modulator. Exactly. Now, let's keep going here with this. The, The beauty of soy's ability to fit into that receptor is that while it's sitting there docked in that receptor, it is preventing other true estrogens from fitting onto that receptor. In addition, another beauty is that not only are we contending with the estrogen that's in our body, even after menopause, because we have aromatase, that enzyme in our fat cells that's converting androgens to estrogen, so that post-menopause, whether you came by that naturally or not, you, you still have estrogen. Your blood level of estrogen is down, but your tissue level of estrogen is up, right? So we not only have that estrogen, and men have some estrogen, but we also have an environment that's polluted with compounds that are estrogenic. We have xenoestrogens that are phthalates, for example, or bisphenol A, these compounds in the environment from plastics and plasticizers that are on the order of 10,000 times stronger than our own body's estrogen. And while soy is sitting here, you're not going to get those estrogens from the environment. Heavy metals are now found to be um, what are there being called metalloestrogens, so like mm-hmm. cadmium, for example, and, and many other heavy metals. So we mm-hmm. are exposed to lots of things that have an estrogenic effect. Now, 
if you take an isolated test tube and you are not competing with these other estrogenic compounds and you just put soy, can you produce a tiny estrogenic effect? Yes. Is that relevant for you or me or most of us? No, because none of us are a test tube free of the exposure of other estrogens. Is there a level that's too much, though? Of soy? We don't know for sure what that level is, and so at this point we're still sort of flushing this out. Mm -hmm. We do know, let's think of, for example, the traditional Asian diet. Now, when we look at the studies that show us this or that answer this question, they're mostly observational studies where it's like, well, look, um, in Asian cultures they eat soy, they don't have more breast cancer than we do, and when they get breast cancer, they don't stop eating soy, and they don't have worse outcomes that we do. So epidemiologically, it doesn't look like that's a problem. The study with the, the problem with an epidemiologic study is, well, they're also drinking green tea, and they're also, they're doing other factors mm -hmm. that might be. There have been some intervention studies, and these are on the slide, that allows you to, to sort of see if we design a study to say, well, what is, if at diagnosis or at some point during the course of breast cancer disease, a woman is eating soy foods, what is the outcome? And in these three studies, we showed it was protective. It did not increase the death rate. It did not increase the rate of recurrence. And these are large studies. They are studies done on Asian women. So it might still be other issues mm -hmm. in that that is. But at this point, it's, it's mostly clear that we don't think it's a big concern. I think there are a couple of other issues here. I think well, you can't just say soy. What food are we talking about? Are we talking about highly isolated soy protein powder? Or are we talking about soy food, like traditional foods that would actually be in a typical Asian diet, right? Because uh, there was a study in carcinogenesis a number of years back. This study is now about eight or ten years. Uh, it's a test tube study, but what they did was they took soy from different sources. So they had an isolated soy protein powder, and they had miso and tempeh and, you know, different kinds of... And what they found is that the food-based soy did not promote the growth of breast cancer cells. But the highly processed, isolated, or in any way tampered with soy product did seem to promote the cancer. So I think if you're including soy in the diet, you, you don't want fake soy bacon. You want soy foods <laughs> that you would find in a traditional Asian diet in the amounts you would find in a traditional Asian diet. And I think there's also, there's so much focus on the estrogen issue that we forget that soy has so many other in the cancer literature, it has so many other mechanisms of action against cancer. So it's anti-angiogenesis, um, it, it induces apoptosis, it has gene-regulating effects, it has lots of other ways that might be fighting cancer. And lastly, I want to point out, there are other phytoestrogens. I mean, soy gets all the attention, but legumes mm -hmm. have phytoestrogens, apples, most spices, celery, nuts and seeds do. So these are abundant in the diet, and it, it leads me to believe that they're there on purpose. You know what I mean? So whoever created this whole thing and made up all of our food must have put these in. They must have known what they were doing. And they must have put these things here as a checks and balances, as a regulator for our estrogens. Thank you. Yeah. And how about antioxidants during treatment? That's another question. Were you going to pipe in anything about soy, hun? Okay. Okay. Shaking her head no. <laughs> yes, I also get this one all the time, and it's fun you're doing the questions. I don't have a slide for everything you're going to ask me, but <laughs> it's fun you did these in these order. Okay. <laughs> Big controversy about antioxidants That's in cancer great. treatment. Big controversy. <laughs> and, and 
What this really, it started with is we didn't originally have any science. We, we have enough science now we can take a couple of ganders. But what it started with was there's a belief that cancer treatment, radiation and chemotherapy, have its cancer-killing effect by causing oxidation or free radicals. So it sort of makes sense then if you eat a food that quenches those free radicals, then that must interfere with the treatment. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's a really oversimplified understanding because antioxidants and pro-oxidants are all in the same family. There are many different types of free radicals, and each of them have a specific number of antioxidants that quench it. So let's do an example. Um, radiation, it, it, as far as we know right now, it kills cancer cells by a hydroxyl radical. Uh, vitamin E doesn't quench hydroxyl radical. So there really isn't a way for vitamin E to interfere with chemotherapy through mechanism of action. Um, radiation with radiation. Therapy. Sorry, I right. said the wrong thing. Vitamin C quenches hydroxyl radical, so that should be studied, and we should find out for sure what level of vitamin C. It's probably, my guesstimate, is going to be it's on the order of 10 grams or 10,000 milligrams would be enough. So it, it's a lot more complex than just don't eat any antioxidants. Mm -hmm. it's, it's which particular... Uh, types of free radicals are being generated by that particular treatment, and is that the actual mechanism of action where that particular treatment or chemotherapy is causing a problem? Now, there are a number of studies that have begun to look at this and said, you know, because there are a lot of, there aren't any really good one study that answers this question. There aren't. It's too complex. It's too you complex. But there are a lot of individual studies. Mm -hmm. So there have been done some meta-analyses. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, um, Charles Simone and his group, um, they have done a, a meta-analysis of over 5,000 cancer patients. And what they have shown is like uh, over, over 8,000 patients, 5,000 of which were taking antioxidants during their cancer treatment, they didn't find any evidence of interfering with the chemotherapy. And so they're pooling the data from lots of different studies, and there's a couple of drawbacks to that, but it does give us a sense of, you know, what's going on here. And they're not finding that there's an interference with the treatment. They are finding that there's improved outcomes. So what happens if somebody, and, and this happens a lot, goes in and talks to their oncologist or another physician, and they say, either do whatever you want, it's not going to make much difference, or I think this could cause problems. Mm -hmm. um, how does someone who is going through treatment know how to balance this information and talk to their healthcare provider? Yeah, we give our clients tools to take into the doctor, and you can use this slide if you know that when you get the slides, use the slide and bring this in. We often tell a client that the the doctor's specialization, they've spent a lot of time studying medicine, and medicine doesn't include nutrition, so they get very little information. <laughs> and they have enough to do without keeping up with all the nutrition science. So you want somebody who knows the nutrition science with you. Mm -hmm. um, and what I would do is have a frank discussion with the doctor that says, if there's a study that you're aware of that would show that this is a harmful thing, then I want to see that study, and I'll take it to my nutritionist too. But oftentimes the doctor doesn't know, and is just trying to protect you. Since he doesn't know, and it might be harmful, he's saying, gosh, please don't do this because I don't mm -hmm. know and I don't want you to do something that, that's harmful. So I would go in with that information. Mm -hmm. Often we send the meta-analyses. There are two more recent ones since this one that's on the slide. Um, and we'll send all three of those to the doctor and say, this is what we know so far. One of the things I love is when the doctor is like, don't take any vitamin E, vitamin C, and they have a list of which pills not to take. Well, those barely count as antioxidants. In my opinion, these are your antioxidants. Food. 
Food is so much more powerful as an antioxidant than supplements are. There's a, a group at, oh, I'm going to forget. No, they're at Tufts. And they have a, a method of measuring how much antioxidant capacity is in a, a food or a supplement. And so they've published this big chart. And it's beautiful. It's like vitamin E, one capsule, 400 IU. The ORAC is 125 units. Blueberries, one half cup. The ORAC is 3,250 <laughs> units. So sometimes I have a client who comes in and is like, my doctor told me not to, and I, I, I trust my doctor. I don't want him to get mad at me. I was like, oh, honey, then don't take any pills. We, we don't think you need pills. Just go home and eat food, you know, because what we're finding is that the, it, it's almost impossible to not get antioxidants in your food. And the power, the, the antioxidant strength is so much higher than you would get in most supplements. So... We already all are. Those of us who've gone through cancer treatment have been doing that with antioxidants mm -hmm. if we're eating, and you know it, it seems to work well. Our clients who eat well, I often get a call from the oncologist. It's like, what are you doing? This person is doing so well. You know, where the, they're in the wait room yeah. and everyone says, "Who are you waiting for?" And it's like, no, I'm here for myself for treatment because I'm doing so well. That's the outcome most people are looking for. Yeah. Um, but, but with that, I mean, a lot of people who are going through treatment for cancer really lose their sense of taste, their interest in food, the energy to cook with, or to even go to the farmer's market and get this beautiful basket of foods. Now, you talked about the fast, and I've watched you do this, Rebecca, and I know that it works. I've worked it. I know it works. Um, do you have any other practical tips for people who are really struggling with that or even having the time to, to prepare these wonderful foods where supplements, you know, seem so much easier to people? Yeah. Um, it's a great question. I always like to think that what's really, to think about food um, and nourishing yourself as um, being a little bit more of a delegating type of opportunity in where you can get friends and family, maybe not family, but friends, or what I call <laughs> the culinary support team behind you. And there are a few, I think a few um, things that are really helpful to have on hand, especially when you're in the throes of treatment and you're really having a hard time. And um, one happens to be a recipe in both my books called The Magic Mineral Broth or... Um, People call it love soup or miracle broth or magic broth or that magic stuff. But um, basically, it, it pretty much takes just a basket full of vegetables. I call it chop and throw. And you put it in a big, huge pot, one that I could live in that big. <laughs> and um, Your you, get, you get somebody to make it for you and have them deliver it to you in small portion control containers that you can then put in your freezer and then you can take out at, uh, like four cups at a time and heat it up and always have it on hand. And it's like taking your body to the internal spa, you know, because it's talking to the cells. It's really high in potassium and minerals. It's going to keep you hydrated it doesn't have an offensive taste so that when you're really going through that throes of like really not wanting to eat, you're still having nourishment. I always think that broths are a really good place to start. And then, um, you know, when you're in the throes of treatment, sometimes it's as simple as somebody doing the shopping 
and maybe somebody else is a great prep cook, mm -hmm. and then somebody else cooks it, and it's delivered to you again, not in like, like this big container. Like when I first started cooking for people with cancer and I walked in with a, um, a like a huge, I think it was like, I don't know, uh, like a half gallon of carrot soup in a big food service container. And it was like here. And it's like the person was like, oh, wow, this is wonderful. <laughs> you know, well, what am I going to do, do with this? And am I going to be eating this for the rest of, you know, my days, you know? So I think, you know, I think a lot of when you're in the critical stage, we don't think about this, but creating that um, community around food and nourishment is critical. And, and how long does someone need to be eating well in this oncometabolic milieu, the optimal milieu, to really change things? And does this work both before someone develops cancer, after they've developed cancer? Um, you know, what, what are our timelines here? This is probably a good plan, cancer prevention, cancer mm. treatment, and preventing a recurrence afterwards. Right. Most of our clients who begin to eat this way feel so good, they don't really want to go back. We don't think of it as like a diet that you're on for a period of time. Mm. It's like if you can shift your genes, that those healthier genes are also going to help you prevent diabetes and cardiovascular disease and promote longevity. So it's something that you're going to want to do. Now, this is not about like 100%. You know, yeah. we tell our clients, mm -hmm. think 80-20, you know, think 90-10. You're, you're eating really well and really healthy and really focusing on the medicinal value of the food 80 or 90% of the time. But eating for nutrition, that's not the only reason we eat. We eat to hang out with friends. We eat because certain foods have emotional attachment to them. We eat for cultural reasons. We eat for connection. There's a lot of other stuff going on about food, and we honor that and know that that's a part of it as well. So, you know, some, I've had a call, help, I'm, I'm in the McDonald's parking lot. What do I do? <laughs> oh, you do interventions you too. You don't, no, we don't do interventions, and please don't confess to me. You know, it's like, I'm just giving you the tools. I, I'm not, I don't I'm not care about judging you about what you eat. Eat. You know, it's like if you really want a burger and you don't want to feel bad for yourself, go to the farmer's market and get yourself some grass-fed beef, you know. It's, but if you eat at McDonald's, mm -hmm. you don't need to call and confess. But, yeah, it's, it's a, a lifelong thing. You start to enjoy it so much that you don't really worry about that. What was the first part of your question, though, because I don't want to miss having gotten back to that. How long until How long you would take? see some effects? We like, have some clients who within 10 days have told us, and especially if you're in treatment and you're really depleted, the magic mineral broth, maybe even 48 hours that you're going to really feel better. Yep. A lot of so the you'll fatigue... you feel it and see, see it, it at a cellular level? Yes. Okay. We at, when we do a panel of tests at the beginning, like that, we, t we talked about the tests for the... Um, insulin resistance, but we go testing for a, a lot of things. You know, we go testing for inflammation and for uh, markers of angiogenesis and certain genes. We get this big old panel, and then we want to come back in three months and, and be able to show the client, okay, you've been doing all mm -hmm. that work about changing your diet and eating these healthy foods. We want you to see the payoff. And so we repeat that panel. We're able to show people at the three-month mark what you might feel better or not, but metabolically, your numbers are shifting, and it really shows people. A lot of the, just one little add-on mm -hmm. here, a lot Please. of the 
depletion and uh, loss of energy and, and fatigue and that just like, you know, feeling when you're going through treatment is depletion of, of minerals, particularly potassium and magnesium. So the magic mineral broth gets that, but it's also depletion of carnitine. And carnitine is a constituent mm -hmm. that your body uses to take all your raw materials into your mitochondria and burn it to produce energy or to produce ATP. So when you're missing carnitine, you have a factory and the raw building materials, but nobody to deliver the materials into the factory to produce the energy. And carnitine is predominantly found in meats and animal products. A lot of people are thinking, oh, I have to be a vegetarian because I'm fighting cancer now. So they're, they're going through treatment that depletes their carnitine, chemotherapy and radiation deplete carnitine, and they're not replacing it with their foods. So in those cases, a supplement or eating those foods, but a supplement will work really quickly. There are six human clinical trials of carnitine that have shown anywhere from like 3,000 to 6,000 milligrams. That's like three to six grams. If you get this in a liquid, it's like a little teaspoon mm -hmm. of the liquid. Mm -hmm. And um, 65 to 80% of the patients, their energy level came back. They're still in treatment. So it's a really easy intervention to try to get your energy level back so that you have the energy to eat well. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? What's the difference between carnitine and L-carnitine? L-carnitine is the correct scientific name for that, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So one more question, and then we'll open it up for everybody to ask questions. Um, but somebody else will probably ask this, too. What about alcohol? <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of the most common ones we get. Yeah. And there's been a lot of controversy. There's another study that Ted just sent us this week about, about wine and how much, how little, what kinds of alcohol, when, when not. Um, I, I, one of the things, I love that you asked this question, and I could do this with, with many different questions, but I want to give you a way of thinking about the questions and the controversies. That is, you want to say for who and under what circumstance. Mm. Because sometimes it's like, okay, a vegetarian diet is the right. Well, for who and under what circumstance? Which type of cancer is it? And so this is true for what we see so far. We're still trying to tease out, ultimately, how much alcohol is safe, what types of cancer might it be good for, what types of cancer might it mm -hmm. not be good for. So the, there's not an ultimate answer, a yes or no. Instead, we have a smattering of pieces of evidence that we can say, well, one of the things we know is that in the body, in the liver, the enzyme that helps you break down alcohol, alcohol dehydrogenase, that pathway is also really important for the metabolism and clearance of estrogens from the system. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we know is once you hit about two or three alcoholic drinks per week, you your body is busy using that pathway to regularly get rid of alcohol and your blood estrogen levels begin to climb. So if you're, if you're asking this question about what about alcohol and you're worried or concerned about an estrogen-driven type of cancer, then you wanna, you're thinking, this might not be the best choice for me. Small amounts of a little bit of, and we're saying a serving, we're talking about like three and a half ounces. You're not filling the whole goblet, right? Mm -hmm. that, that once, twice a week, that doesn't look to be a problem. Not this. No, that's six to eight ounces, depending on if you're filling it to here or to the brim, right? So not a coffee cup size. So that might be a concern. There's also in the literature a number of studies that have looked at recurrence rates for alcohol drinkers versus non-alcohol drinkers for various cancers. And some cancers, head and neck cancer, really rises to the top of this. Um, drinking alcohol greatly increases the risk of recurrence for head and mm -hmm. neck cancers. So I would be careful there. But on the other hand, there's quite a bit of research that shows moderate alcohol intake, and this is usually with red wine, um, because it's a source of resveratrol, has some health benefits. So here we have some studies health benefits, some studies not health benefits. 
I will think too about the blood sugar and insulin resistance issue. Mm -hmm. Thinking alcohol is sort of like a super sugar, and you mm -hmm. often see that you know all those signs of insulin resistance develop quite quickly in someone who's drinking more alcohol than they should. So it's an, I would want to sit down with the person and say, what type of cancer? What's your situation? What you know? How much? How many signs of insulin resistance do you have? Are we concerned about estrogen in your, in your particular story? And make a, a person-to-person -person decision about whether alcohol was a good choice for them or not. I really think that as we are learning more about targeted cancer therapies, about the target and the therapy that's happening in conventional medicine, that we're going to see some very similar things. And you've talked about this today, these metabolic pathways. And the, the same thing with foods, where for one person they will have this sort of structure that these foods will be most helpful with or this style of eating will be most helpful with. Mm -hmm. Whereas another human being, even with the same kind of cancer, may end up benefiting more from a slightly different structure. Do you see that on the horizon? Yes, absolutely, and, and it can't get here fast enough for me because yeah. I am so frustrated with the, you know, over the course of a month, maybe we have six women with stage 3 C ovarian cancer that come in the office door, and they're all given the exact same treatment. Uh -huh. And yet we run our tests, and they're completely different diseases. I'm, I'm fond of saying your cancer is as unique as your fingerprint. Yes. And so, you know, we, uh, when we run our tests, we might have a client who we see the pattern for them is really about insulin resistance and low vitamin D levels. She's not having a problem with inflammation. Her hormones look great. Everything else looks great. Mm -hmm. So if I gave the same protocol to each particular client, it would be a disservice. So that we don't do more testing in, in, in the mainstream medical field and oncology. We don't do more testing to discover who is this person and what is their cancer right. all about. And then tailoring the treatment to them, it just breaks my little heart. But I think we're getting there. We're moving there. in I that mean, direction. When you talk about... Oh, proteomics yeah. and when you're talking oh, yeah. about the gene arrays, it, we're getting it's there. getting there. Yeah, we're starting. Okay, questions? <laughs> can, you, can you say more about vitamin D deficiency? Yeah, vitamin D has really been in the news recently, yeah. as, uh, both as a cancer um, preventive agent, perhaps. Yeah. Um, what yep. about the uh, deficiency? Vitamin D is a differentiating agent. Um, what that means is that you have a cancer cell and... Uh, it, it, it's, like, it's like a partying teenager. Instead of growing up <laughs> and taking on a job as a healthy breast cell or a healthy liver cell, it just wants to party and stay up all night and, and have babies. <laughs> you know, and, and it doesn't take on a job. And that's what differentiation is. Differentiation is grow up, take on a job, and act like a normal cell in my body. <gasps> Vitamin D gives the cell the genetic information that says, here is your job, be a healthy breast cell. So when you're walking around with deficiency, it predisposes you to, to cancer. It's, mm -hmm. And after a cancer diagnosis, there are some studies that have showed vitamin D, repleting the vitamin D could actually re-differentiate the cells, even in stage four brain tumors. Mm -hmm. So there's a, it's a beautiful study coming up. Uh, Paul Troyos out of France is a beautiful study. Brain tumor patients who had exhausted all their treatment options, instead of going to hospice, they were put enrolled in a trial of high-dose vitamin D. No one had any side effects from this particular study. And 28% uh, of the patients, their MRI showed a re regression. of The, the disease mm -hmm. went away. You know, well, one of my clients right. was in that particular study and became an eight-year survivor after being told he, he probably wouldn't live six months. 
So I don't important. think we know enough yet, though, to say everyone should be on a high vitamin D diet. We don't know, I mean, what, we the right, we don't know what the right level yeah. of vitamin D is yet. Just like many of the vitamin levels. Yeah, absolutely. But what do you and, recommend? And, what For, for an, a normal person and or for someone going through cancer uh, treatment, what, what level of vitamin D supplementation do you recommend? We're looking for in that about 50 or 60 um, is, is a good range. We see a lot of practitioners going 80 to 100. I so use. I use, yes. Um, micrograms per deciliter. This is a blood level. This is not a, a uh, dose. Uh, uh, okay, so what, how many? Nanograms per milliliter, Thank yes. You. So, but, but what about in the supplement? Okay, we'll get there in a second. Okay. Okay, the, that you, and my point I want to make is, in that sort of 50 to 60, 60 to 70, that looks like a really good level. A lot of the research is really piddling around with, like right now, 30 or 35 is the cutoff for healthy and normal. And mm -hmm. some studies have shown, well, 40 would help a little bit. And I was like, yeah, but you're only going up a little bit. And if, we'd, uh, if we've come from this evolution and history of working outdoors, our blood levels are probably considerably higher. So we're mm -hmm. still playing with what's ideal. But you don't want to go <laughs> above 80. And this is, I might be the only one saying this in my field. There are a lot of people in the complementary in the vitamin side saying, oh, if, more, if some is good, more is better. We work a lot with autoimmune conditions. It runs in my family. I don't, I don't take clients for it, but I, I've done a lot of work on it. And in someone who has lupus or an autoimmune condition, a blood level of, of 80 or higher will suppress the immune system in the same way that a steroid will. So you don't want to be a cancer patient yeah. and get your blood level up to D and uh, your D 80. level up to 80 and suppress your immune system. Mm -hmm. We're talking D, but we're not really talking D. You can't isolate vitamin D. Mm -hmm. it, it has cousins. It has buddies. It needs to play with vitamin A, vitamin K, vitamin E. Uh, these all work with each other. They mm -hmm. compete with each other for carboxylation, which in essence what you're hearing is if I take one of these at the exclusion of others, I am creating a functional deficiency of others. Yeah. So some of what we see is like, oh, high dose of vitamin D might not be good, it's because you're depleting vitamin A when you do that. Or you're depleting mm. vitamin, you know, you're not getting enough vitamin K to work with that, together with that. Now you asked me, how much should you take in a supplement? Mm -hmm. We don't know. And the reason we don't know is because I will know after I get your blood level, mm -hmm. right? But let's say that you don't know it and you're gluten intolerant. And your current blood level of vitamin D, we're making some things up, is instead of 50 or 60, which I've liked it, to see it's only 19. I, would ha I wouldn't even blink about saying let's work with 10,000 IU per day mm -hmm. supplements for you of vitamin D and we'll come back in six or eight weeks and retest your level, mm -hmm. right? Because with the gluten intolerance, I know you're going to have some malabsorption issues. You're, you're going to have a little trouble with that and your blood level is so low. Toxicity begins if you hit 150. Mm -hmm. So there I, I have this long leeway before I get to 150. I'm not worried about that. Somebody else who maybe their blood level is already 45 is like, go play in the sunshine. You know, you're, you're so close to getting mm -hmm. there, right? Not in the center, in the middle of the day, uh, not radiated skin out in the sun. I mean, we're going to talk about that stuff, but it's going to be different for every person. So it's not going to be, a, oh, everybody should take this much vitamin D. Thank you. Okay. I have three questions. Could you talk about coffee? Could you tell us how to access the slideshow on the, on the web? And three, could you explain to a lay woman why are different ca cancers different? I mean, you know, breast cancer, colon cancer, different meaning they respond to different. Susan, do you want to tell them how to get this access to the slides first? Uh, Kara will tell you that. Um, well, why don't you tell them right now and then we'll tell them again at the end. So you can go to our website, which is www. <coughs> dot the hyphen new hyphen school dot org. 
and you'll see uh, there's a library page, and you'll see on the, the library page, you'll see this talk, and there'll be a button for the PDF. Okay, why different can Why I'm going to do about why ca cancers are different first. Why different cancers are different. Remember the slide I showed from Dean Ornish's study where he had a, a microwave array analysis, a little profile there, and there were like 500 different genes? But in the popular press, we hear about one or two cancer genes. Like there's BRCA1 and BRCA2, you know. But we don't know this and we're not aware, but there are hundreds of genes that are promoting the cancer process. Um, in the last couple of years, it has been researched that what we think of as breast cancer, like right now we just stage breast cancer by how, how far progressed it is. Oh, it's just this little tiny one. It hasn't gone anywhere. That's stage one. Oh, it's starting to get into the local. Oh, that's you know stage two, stage three, stage four. It spreads somewhere else. That's how we're describing it. But when they begin to look at the genes that we're understanding and they look at a big population of, let's say, let's take all these women with early stage breast cancer and we'll look at the genes. What they expected is that they were going to have the same cluster. And in actuality, there were several different clusters that happened. So there were like different subtypes. What we were thinking was one disease, oh, early stage, stage breast cancer. What emerged were several different clusters of disease. And when they began then looking at, well, what's the outcome of these different clusters? They found that, for example, wow, this particular genetic profile, those women don't really respond to chemotherapy. It doesn't change the course of the disease at all. So maybe the women who have this particular genetic cluster and early stage breast cancer probably shouldn't be getting chemotherapy. And this is the group who are benefiting, right? So again, this what you were saying mm -hmm. about doing enough testing to individualize the treatment. So there's the characteristics of the cancer and the different genes that are upregulated in that particular cancer. And then there's the characteristic of the person the things I've presented, the oncometabolism. So that if you have an early stage breast cancer with a particular genetic cluster in a body that has a lot of inflammation, low levels of vitamin D, insulin resistance, elevated copper, which is a, a factor with angiogenesis, hormone imbalance, that whether that's the stage one or stage two isn't relevant. We need to get to the underlying factors here that are promoting a rapid progression or a more aggressive course for that disease. So I think that's part of the answer of like, how are things really individual? It's the characteristics of the person and then the genetic characteristics of that particular tumor. Um, coffee, <clears throat> it's the same story with alcohol. We've got a handful of studies that have positive findings. You know, mm -hmm. th there was one in the press just like, what, two weeks ago of like, five cups of coffee a day protects against <laughs> X cancer, you know? And then there, there are studies that have shown negative. There are some studies show that coffee... Um, protects against diabetes, and then uh, Dr. Lane, I'm going to forget his institution, has a study out showing that it increased insulin resistance. So the studies are sort of all over the place. Ovarian cancer has some studies showing moderate coffee intake is a preventative factor for risk of ovarian cancer, but I certainly wouldn't do that if I was trying to prevent pancreatic cancer because the studies are negative for it. Um, again, I have to ask, well, what do we mean when we say coffee? 
You know what I mean? Are we talking about organic? You know, is it mm -hmm. has it been sprayed? Are there pesticides on it? How is it being produced? If it's percolated, it doesn't have as many antioxidants. If it's drip, is it coffee from Starbucks that has enough sugar in it to make someone go into a diabetic coma <laughs> and enough cream? And you know, it's like I think we need to get clear about what we're actually researching here. So and that might tease out some of the you know findings on both sides of the pole. Okay. Yeah. Let's go over to this side. It's yeah. um, first of all, I wanted to say that even aside from cancer, those two cookbooks are absolutely amazing. I mean, my cookbook, I have a dozen cookbooks, but the, well, I use yours almost solely, and the back yeah. is broken, and the edges are <laughs> bent over. <laughs> so I just want to pitch yeah. that a little bit for yeah. anybody. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to ask two questions, and one is the substitution of kelp for salt and what you think about that. And then the other question is frying foods. I've gone for a long time but just because of what I've read about how frying is not good for you, so I've been steaming my foods, but you've mentioned that food tastes a lot better when you cook it in oil, but I really would like to know. Well, um, I'll take this. Yeah. Will you do it? Or yeah, I should do it. Okay. I, I'll do it. Um, so he, here's one thing. When we talk about, there's two different modes. There's sautéing and um, oil, and then there's like frying, which is taking the food and letting the temperature of the oil come up really high and dunking that food in. And that's, that's a little tricky. But one thing that I like to do is lightly steam the veg, the vegetable, and then I heat my pan, and then maybe I'll use one or two tablespoons of olive oil, but I heat the pan first so that the olive oil, the pan is already hot. So once I put that olive oil in and then I put my garlic in and the vegetable in, that heat point will come down. So you're getting the benefits of sauteing your vegetables and you're steaming it first so you don't have to keep it, you know, in the oil under high heat for a long period of time. So, um, yeah, just like steam your vegetables in that way, you can like steam your broccoli and then store it even. And that way you've got like your broccoli or whatever all prepped out and at hand, and then you can saute it with all these goodies in it. So that's the one question. And then the other question, oh, for kelp. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you I'm gonna I'm gonna tell what it does flavor wise, but then because there's again that's sort of a yeah. it depends yeah. on the person. Um, you're gonna get a little bit of a different like it's fine to use kelp. It's I mean you know, but you're gonna get a different outcome um, using kelp. It's not like when I use salt. Um, let's say I'm I'm sautéing onions. I'm going to put a pinch of salt in that pan to draw out the natural sweetness and the liquid of that onion. Kelp will not do that. Kelp is great if you um, want to add it to a dish or to your salad or something like that, but it's not going to play the role of a flavor carrier. But it will definitely add that kind of a little bit of the saltiness from the sea. It's a natural glutamate, so it 
you know, it will add sort of that umami taste, but it acts just a little bit differently in terms of cooking. I'm not going to add anything about the kelp. I had something about the oils, and that was just something I learned from you and that I'm quite guilty of is I will often start cooking, and because I'm such a multitasker, I'll get some brilliant idea I want to write down, go to the next room, and then I get another idea, and I go do something else, and then I remember, <gasps> I have a hot pan on the stove, and I run back, and it's smoking, and yeah, I'm a good cook when I stay in the kitchen. <laughs> so yeah, you don't want to leave a pan unattended. You don't want to get it over hot. It, it, oils, if they're heated to smoking point, become quite harmful. So you don't want that to happen. So you do want to keep the heat, you know, it's like you're heating the pan and you're there and you're watching the oil. I like it, when I say steam saute, what I like is when you're first learning about this and where, where's the heat point for my oil, if you put a little bit of uh, Rebecca's Magic Mineral Broth, like a quarter cup of it in the pan, and then heat that up, and then two tablespoons of oil, the boiling point of the water is lower than the smoking point of the oil, and it's going to keep the oil from getting to the smoking point. So mm -hmm. it's a really nice way you're getting all the minerals and the yum factor from the Magic Mineral Broth, and you're playing with oil in a way you're going to get the benefit of a of the flavor carrier and of the nutritional value of it without causing any damaging effects. Mm, great tip. As far as salt goes, though, I've been reading some bad things about sodium chloride, and I have read some really wonderful things about um, pink um, Himalayan salt and wonderful salts from Hawaii that have all these wonderful minerals in them. Gray salt. What do you think Rebecca is saying this? yes. I am like, have at it. I, I I couldn't be more thrilled that there are all these wonderful mineral rich salts that are coming to the to the forefront. It's a lot different than um, the uh, the little blue canister with the which pearl the with whole the purpose of <coughs> substituting in these salts is because sodium chloride in this article that I read is supposed to be actually harmful, and that. That's why they're looking for other kinds of mineralized salts. That, that was really the basis, because I, would, I really like the salt that I'm using. Okay, thank you. Are there any other questions? Or lots of other questions. There's a woman okay. with a striped well, shirt who tried to get me earlier, so I do want to get to her. <laughs> Margo. I have uh, just they're quick questions. They're not real involved. But one is about the pomegranate juice. You were talking about the pomegranate seeds having the, some, some stuff in it that's good. Would you drink 100% not from concentrate pomegranate juice is fresh. Is that do they do they how do they get the seeds out or are they all incorporated in it or should I stay away from that and just eat the seeds whole? I mean I'm not sure about 100%. My understanding is that they're pressing it and you're still going to get some of the constituents from the oil. You're probably not getting all of it. It would be floating on the surface of the oil since there's no emulsifier or anything there. But there's probably some of it there. Um, for me, concern about pomegranate juice is just when I have somebody who's really insulin resistant. Yeah. And so then I would have them dilute that okay. instead of drinking it straight mm -hmm. or 100%. Please and, add. And I would say pomegranate juice reduced, like if you put it mm. in a pot yeah. and you reduce it, it becomes syrupy and it is unbelievable. I mean, as a dollop, as a drizzle, um, on all sorts of things. So mm -hmm. um, it's my, like, it's, I'm working a lot with pomegranates for my next book. It's, it's a real good thing to keep in your back pocket. So wondering about that. And then quickly, walnuts, do we, which, you said black walnuts on one of your slides. What are black, are we getting black walnuts when we go to the raw walnuts in Whole Foods or? 
Um, there are sometimes black walnuts at Whole Foods, and you can look for those. They just have slightly higher omega-3 content than the other. There are several different types of walnuts. So they're, if you're trying to get them for the omega-3, then you might get those. You're still getting some omega-3 with the other types of English walnuts. Because you have a maple walnut yeah. recipe, and I, and I just bought some raw, raw, raw walnuts at Whole Foods. But I just didn't know if those were considered black or what. Are they just as good, or should I look for black? That was really my question. It's it's not a huge difference. Okay. It's you know like ten or twenty percent more omega three. Yeah. Okay. And I love the mineral broth, by the way. <laughs> it's always in my refrigerator now, and I think you know because I went to Common Wheel and I uh, <coughs> never heard of the magic mineral stuff. Well, that's not true. I did. My well, I'm the, I'm going to stop for now because there are so good. many questions. Yeah. It, it is. Okay. It's Don't wonderful. You. Thank yeah. you. What about juicing vegetables? Mm. Juicing vegetables. Mm -hmm. um, Two major concerns. Well, let, let's do pros and cons. Pro, you probably wouldn't sit down and eat four pounds of vegetables, you know, 20 carrots, but you could get all that in a juice. So that's a pro. You're really increasing your phytonutrient. But there are quite a number of negatives about the juicing. And key among those might be that most juicers are extracting out all the fiber, and instead you're getting all the natural vegetable and fruit sugars. So it can be higher glycemic. And it's something that we've actually seen and measured with our clients where somebody will go off and do a, a lot of you know, carrot juice, for example, and then their blood sugar and their insulin resistance parameters really climb up quite quickly. And the fiber, that's such an important cancer-fighting constituent. When that fiber gets in your intestines, your healthy bacteria are converting it to these short-chain fatty acids like butyrate. It's a really potent cancer fighter. So you don't want to be throwing the fiber out and messing with your blood sugar. So I say if you're going to do some juicing, steer clear of the high glycemic ones. So you're not doing all like apple, carrot, gin, uh, beet juice. You're doing more of the leafy green kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, have that with a meal so that you're getting some other, you're telling your body it's time to absorb phytonutrients. Do you need the fat and the other things in your meal to do that absorption? And maybe use a Vitamix or some other type of a blender that you're not extracting the juice and throwing the fiber away. You're blending it into the juice. Okay, I'm going to stop for now. I think that Rebecca is, first of all, going to be out signing books, if anyone would like to buy a book and have that book signed. And I imagine you can ask either one of these wonderful guests of ours some questions before I know they have to run off, though, before too long. So I'm going to turn it over to Kira, but just want to say, Jean Wallace and Rebecca Katz, thank you so much for thank joining you, us Anna. here at the New School. Thank you. Thank Great you. job. Thank you.